Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal Rx. Today, Julianne and I are here with the wonderful Karen Squires to discuss type 2 diabetes and the role in which herbal medicines can play in modifying this disease process and improving the quality of life for our diabetic patients. For those of you who don't know Karen, she's a degree qualified naturopath, nutritionist and diabetes educator. With more than 15 years of clinical experience, Karen has made it her mission to help people identify health issues that might have dysglycemias as the underlying cause. Karen has pursued further postgraduate studies in the area of dietary, nutritional, and herbal management of metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and their related complications. Applying this unique combination of complementary and mainstream understandings of dysglycemia sees Karen providing a holistic approach, empowering her clients to make changes that can delay or even arrest the development of chronic disease. When not in her clinic, you can find Karen leading teams of health and medical volunteers to remote locations in the South Pacific, conducting health assessments and nutritional education, or relaxing in the high country of Victoria with her husband and two whippets. So welcome, Karen. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Kristen and Julianne. I'm very much looking forward to uh, discussing herbal medicine for type 2 diabetes. Oh, we're very excited to have you, Karen. We're really looking forward to the live webinar that you'll be presenting for Optimal Rx on the 20th of July this year, 2022, where Mm -hmm. you're going to be bringing all of your expertise to the table and giving us very generously your clinical insights into this condition. So type 2 diabetes and particularly the herbs around herbs around uh, type 2 diabetes and the ones that we can use to really benefit our patients. So we know that type 2 diabetes is such a huge worldwide health issue and it's got so many downstream consequences. So firstly, we were wondering, could you chat to us about these global concerns around diabetes and and the ever-increasing numbers of adults and even children that are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. What's happening here and and what appears to be the major contributing factors, in your opinion, to the appalling figures that we see? Uh, Yes, it's uh, unfortunately the numbers really are climbing dramatically with type 2 diabetes. Uh, It's considered one of the fastest growing global health emergencies of the 21st century. Uh, The IDF, which is the International Diabetes Federation, estimated in 2021, just last year, that 537 million people have diabetes globally. Uh, And this will climb by more than another 100 million people in just the next eight years. And they're predicting um, it could be up to about 783 million by 2045. And that's 
that's the number for adults. So that's between the ages of 20 to 79 that they've done those um, stats on. But you're right, it's, it's increasing annually in children and adolescents as well uh, every, every year. So the two main contributing factors include being in the overweight or obese category, and we know that that's climbing um, drastically as well, dramatically as well, and also being sedentary. So, I mean, there's also other factors such as increasing age, um, ethnicity, family history, socioeconomic factors and, and even genetics to a degree, but the two main contributing factors seem to be uh, the increase in overweight or obese um, and being uh, increasingly sedentary. Yeah, so really um, the risk factors there are quite uh, common to many people and many of our patients and really there's a lot of, I guess, environmental contributing factors and lifestyle factors that we can look at to see that why this is being driven, I guess. So, mm. yeah, so so far. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, my, my approach always with clients who have any dysglycemias or indication that they might have something going on there, um, diet and lifestyle, those lifestyle um, factors always are underpinning everything, you know, that I'm, I'm every client that I'm seeing. But... Um, you know, there's weight loss, for example, um, still remains to be very challenging for a lot of people as well. So even though uh, the herbal medicines that we use for type 2 diabetes and, and the complications and other things around it are really, really um, fabulous, underneath uh, there's always that lifestyle that needs to be underpinning everything as well. Yeah, they're like the pillars of health that we say to all our patients, aren't they, Karen? Yes, um, absolutely. Diet is obviously a massive one and such an easily modifiable one. If we could take out emotions of everyone's eating habits, <laughs> I think we would actually <laughs> have most of our patients eating a beautiful Mediterranean type of diet if that suits. But um, And I look forward to your, web, to your webinar to go sort of a little bit deeper into some of those contributing factors. Mm -hmm. there. But it is yeah. such a worrying trend. And, you know, as practitioners, we can use some pathology and different markers to actually see where our patients are kind of heading. Yeah. And in your webinar, you actually do present some wonderful clear guidelines around those pathology markers and the levels that are deemed or used to diagnose that type two, type two diabetes, sorry. Mm. However, some of those levels, right, like the HbA1c or fasting glucose or insulin, I'm, they often show that kind of worrying trend in the lead up to a full-blown diagnosis. So can you tell us or give us any maybe clinical tips on to what we can look for with regards to pathology markers or even a symptom picture prior sure. to that patient actually being diagnosed? You know, where can we step in? Sure, sure. Um, well, the diagnostic criteria for type 2 diabetes is, is mainly done by the fasting blood glucose and the HbA1c mainstream um, and sometimes an oral glucose tolerance test depending on their fasting blood glucose result. So we definitely need to watch those standard pathology markers as they are what move our clients into a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So they, they are important. So if you start to see a HbA1c creeping up, um, as you said, Julianne, there's often a trend 
um, that won't be addressed um, until it's out of the range and then it's, it's diagnostic. So if you start to see a trend and start to see, for example, HbA1c starting to creep over that 6% or a fasting blood glucose starting to creep up and over the 5.5 millimoles, for example, these, these are both red flags especially if you've, if you've got some history with that client and you can see that that trend was heading up. Um, so besides, um, behind those two markers, um, it's worth checking in with your client to see whether there's been a change in weight or stress, for example, so you could start working on, on bringing that back. But I also like to keep an eye on many, many other different uh, pathology markers uh, lipid studies are uh, really important if someone, especially if someone is diagnostic, um, given that endothelial dysfunction that we see in type 2 diabetes, they often go hand in hand. So I'll often do a, um, a cardiovascular extensive functional pathology test as well as their standard lipid studies. Um, but just general biochem and hematology, it's great to keep an eye on those. Uh, there's been some studies looking at whether our full blood exam uh, is somehow giving us some um, messages about beta cell function there so that's an, an insulin resistance so that's going to be really uh, interesting to follow in future given that type 2 diabetes is so supremely inflammatory uh, I always keep an eye on inflammatory markers as well like uh, CRP Vitamin D is incredibly important. Uh, beta cells have vitamin D receptors, so they're very important for blood sugar uh, regulation and homeostasis. Uh, iron studies, elevated stores have been linked to insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. Uh, kidney markers, which I think you talked about in a previous podcast in, in some depth there, um, so keeping an eye on, on kidney markers as well as kidney um, diabetic nephropathy is a very silent uh, disease. Um, and B12 as well, really important for ne neuropathies in diabetes. Uh, but also in clinic, ask your clients if they have any other signs or symptoms that might not be revealed by some pathology tests so they might... Uh, you know, uh, have um, fatigue, uh, polydipsia, polyuria, skin tags, acanthosis, nigrans, uh, demopathy, which often shows up on the shins, hunger, blurred vision, slow healing, all of those things should raise red flags as well. So that, they might represent with none of these or one of these, um, but it's important, I think, in your uh, questioning when you see clients in clinic. Wow, that, that's fantastic, Karen. You've just given us a whole range of wonderful things. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, and I think you're right. Like diabetes is a chronic disease, so we can't look for one or two markers like HbA1c and, and obviously fasting glucose, et cetera. We can actually have a look at the whole range of, of pathology or what, what entails the diabetic pathology or metabolic syndrome, right? Yep, absolutely. Because when you think about it, um, there really isn't one cell of the body that remains untouched by glucose. Mm. So it is really a systemic issue mm -hmm. um, and a, a chronic inflammatory condition. And um, the other thing too uh, that's really important to realise clinically as well is that most 
um, most clients will be asymptomatic. There's there's a high proportion of the population walking around without without knowing that they have type two diabetes. So uh, the average time to diagnosis is around about seven years. So I think as natural medicine practitioners, we're really in an ideal position to be able to capture some of that um, before it does progress to type 2 diabetes. So, um, you know, it's really important if you're starting to see a worrying trend in some of the markers that I've just mentioned to act immediately. Don't wait until, you know, until there's an overt diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Um, because the the complications are already occurring before diagnosis. So your client will already have effects on beta cell integrity and function. They uh, will already be experiencing increasing insulin resistance, endothelial inflammation, the beginnings of macro and microcirculation complications. So it's really important to remember that Um, I think, in my opinion, that the problems don't start with the diagnosis. So there's often a long pre-diagnostic period. And uh, as I said, as natural health practitioners, this really puts us in an ideal uh, position of being able to pick it up. And you might very well be, you know, the clinician that um, identifies that for your client before it becomes um, an overt diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And we are so lucky to be in that position, I think, <clears throat> with the knowledge and tool belt that we actually have. So mm-hmm. that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm wondering if we could actually just, just briefly touch on the pathophysiology around type 2 diabetes. And I know that you're going to go into this in your webinar, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. But in that, I think you're going to discuss the term ominous octet. Did I say that right? Ominous octet. <laughs> you Don't you love that? <laughs> I actually did when I when I saw your notes and stuff. I thought, oh, I'm going to have to ask about this. This looks pretty cool. Um, anything pathology looks pretty cool or pathophysiology yeah. looks pretty cool to yeah. me. So yeah. I'm wondering, can you just briefly explain that? You don't have to go into massive detail. Just briefly explain what that term means. I'm with you, Julianne. I really, I really loved it when I discovered that as well. Okay, so the pathogenesis of type two diabetes was initially around three defects. It was initially confined to the three defects being impaired insulin secretion by the pancreas, uh, decreased uptake by skeletal tissue, so insulin resistance, and increased glucose production by the liver. And so that's still relevant, of course, but it it often um, for a very long time just revolved around those three. However, in 2009, I think it was 2008, 2009, the term the ominous octet was coined um, to include and show that there's many other players in the condition. So what was added into the three that already existed was another five, so adipocytes, um, incretin deficiency, so that um, gut involvement, uh, the alpha cells of the pancreas, you know, we often focus just on the beta cells, uh, kidney and brain. So those extra five things came in to create eight, Uh, but it has actually progressed further than than that. Um, Research is dynamic and it's constantly ongoing, so it actually progressed uh, and there are 16. (laughs) So they're now calling it the sweetening 16. So what I really liked about it, I think, is that it 
you know, a multifactorial issue and that we can actually step in as natural health medicine practitioners um, at any of those spaces with any of those systems or organs that might be exhibiting um, issues. So, yes, so we have gone on from the 8th to the 16th and some of the research that I've read has made, made me think that, you know, this is just going to keep expanding. <laughs> and getting funnier and, and more descriptive <laughs> names. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the researchers out there, I guess, keeping themselves uh, entertained. <laughs> we've got to do, do it. And I think that's just... Um, you know, beautifully said, Karen, because that's really what the pathology gives us. You know, we get so yeah. much insight into how we can help, how we can intervene, where we can intervene, matching mechanism of action of our vitamins mm. with, you know, the these drivers of disease that are going on in our patients' bodies. So that's fantastic. And Speaking of herbs, I would love to dive into some herbal medicine now, if that's all right. <laughs> so diabetes, yeah, obviously it's such a chronic disease. And, yeah. and like you said, we know that our beautiful herbal medicine can play such an important role in the management of, of all chronic disease because of the way that it works and it's, you know, it's multi-targeted approach. Uh, with regard to type 2 diabetes, what do you believe are the major areas that herbalists can enlist their phytomedicines to help alter or modulate the disease process you know for example looking at different parts of of that spectrum of of uh i guess target tissues looking at glucose or insulin control what mm -hmm. do you what do you sort of look at uh i individualize things as much as possible obviously but if um with any dysglycemias or or uh, type 2 <clears throat> excuse me diabetes uh, i'll always look at hopefully we have some pathology markers to look at um, and i will look at herbs for glycemic control for inflammation insulin sensitivity and protecting beta cell uh, integrity uh, there's often comorbidities that go along with the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, like the uh, dyslipidemias as well. So certainly uh, vascular protection, protecting the microcirculation, um, also uh, mood and stress. Like it's very, it's very stressful to be diagnosed with a with a chronic condition, and there's a lot of anxiety and um, that I see in clinical as well um, with the stigma of being uh, diagnosed with a chronic disease. So looking at herbs for uh, stress and anxiety is important to me as well. Uh, and I think I mentioned anti-inflammatories. It's one of my, my, my biggest. So they're kind of the key areas um, where phytomedicines are really powerful in, in their ability to help modulate and uh, be protective with type 2 diabetes. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And it's great because thinking of those different uh, classes of herbal medicines, you know, they're all going to be interplaying and having effects on those other areas as well. You know, your anti-inflammatories are going to be, you know, being protective and, and different, you know, your, your sort of herbs to improve uh, insulin sensitivity and glucose control are also going to then reduce the inflammatory load, you know, from yeah. other mechanisms. So it's, that's fantastic. And with regard to 
insulin sensitivity and glucose control, that being a very major area of um, focus, what would be your main herbal medicines that when you use them in clinic, you've really found that they improve this area of, you know, diabetic pathogenesis and what's, what do you think the mechanism is? How do you think these, you know, sort of gung-ho ones that always very, uh, very reliable herbs, how, how they work in this area? Um, Yes, I do have some favorites for sure um, with regards to um, glycemic control, insulin sensitivity, uh, particularly inflammation. I will always address inflammation, even if a client uh, isn't showing any dysglycemias, but are carrying too much weight. I will always include an anti-inflammatory in there. Um, our herbs have many crossover actions, so it's it's difficult sometimes to pop them in one particular category. But, you know, we have such an amazing array of, of these uh, evidence-based herbs and they, they do um, target, a, you know, those actions cross over and they do target a variety of things at the one time, which is great. Um, I really like gymnema, um, which helps to, uh, for glycemic control, that really helps to uh, reduce glucose absorption. I've also found that it's quite good with um, in weight control as well, where people have cravings in that kind of uh, appetite control issue. I've found gymnema can actually really help control control that. Has a great um, anti-diabetic um, effect on blood sugar levels as well. Nigella as well is, is uh, fantastic for glycemic control. Bitter melon uh, is also a favourite. Um, it's, it's been shown to work in a few different ways, bitter melon. Actually, there's a lot of research on it. It enhances insulin sensitivity, which is really important. It's also been shown to repair um, damaged pancreatic uh, beta cells and help to stimulate insulin secretion. And uh, there does seem to be some effect on um, the microbiome as well with many of our herbs. Um, But back to bitter melon before we jump into the the gut. Um, It's also seems to have an effect on um, the incretin effect in the gut. So it does have an effect on the glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor. So it you know, uh, bitter melon's great in that it works in very different aspects. I really um, have found really good success with berberine-containing herbs like coptis and, and berberus, reducing both fasting blood glucose and postprandial glucose. So those people who who eat and the blood sugar level still goes way too high um, if they've had a carbohydrate meal. Uh, Berberine's also been shown to reduce HbA1c levels by the same percentage as uh, metformin does. So that's uh, really interesting as well. Uh, And what I love about berberine, as I mentioned earlier, um, often dyslipidemias go along with type 2 diabetes. So it has a really great cardiometabolic effect in that it can reduce triglycerides and LDL and total cholesterol so there are a couple of my favorites there for glycemic control. Yeah, it's hard to choose favorites. It's hard to choose. <laughs> and <laughs> you really did um, pick a few that we commonly 
yeah Julianne and myself commonly use and I think something with um you know bitter melon it it's so it's quite effective but it really is quite bitter and it has that cold bitter taste so yeah combines really beautifully with something like nigella or cinnamon or one of those yeah warming anti-diabetic herbs and yeah absolutely yeah works wonderfully and with the with your berberine containing plants that you prescribe do you tend to um if it if it's somebody that has that um blood sugar spike after a meal yeah you what's your sort of dose regime would you prescribe it with the meal or after the meal or are you just prescribing it as a once a day twice a day thing and it tends to work you know it depends what they're eating to cause that spike um, so if we can't make any changes there, as we know, um, you know, clients can be a little bit <laughs> resistant to some change. Um, but I'll often use it before a meal. I'll often use it before a meal a couple of times. If, if I start to see a trend with, if it's a particular meal, for example, it might be always lunch or it might be always dinner or it may just be breakfast, um, then I'll put in place for that particular meal for them to have um to have it prior to the meal if it's just to modulate the postprandial blood sugar rise otherwise if it if somebody does have um you know the the high cholesterol and other things that go along with type 2 diabetes i will just um recommend it two or three times a day yeah berberine is such a such a wonderful constituent and such an interesting constituent within the research too because we know it is so extremely powerful topically or within the gut let's say and then also quite powerful where it's um eliminated so the urinary tract or kidneys and things like that so the systemic effect of berberine always really interests me in Mm. regards to its absorption Mm. because i'm i'm still a little bit oh if we're ingesting it, how how much of that systemic stuff are we give are we actually getting on a berberine level? And but the research is so promising. So you know, I think it's a trial and error thing clinically. But we have these other, as Kristen just said, we have these other amazing phytomedicines that you just spoke of as well. Yeah. And perhaps we can be working in combination there. And um, we will go into the microbiome soon anyway. But mm. um, perhaps some of that is kind of gut out as well as that um, activity that it might actually have systemically. It's, it's very interesting research. It is. Um, so berberine is considered to have low bioavailability because it's, it's poorly absorbed by those ester- intestinal epithelial cells. But, and I'm going to just quickly jump back into the gut again, but because uh, I'm a bit excited about it, but <laughs> recent studies have found that the gut microbiota actually may be playing an important role in in berberine, um, what they call biotransformation and its anti-diabetic effects. So it seems that what actually happens is the gut microbiota convert berberine to a more easily absorbable but inactive metabolite. So it's much smaller and it's able to be absorbed. And after it's been absorbed, it seems to be oxidised back to its original state and then can exert those um pharmacological activities in in the circulation yeah that's so, awesome i know yeah. 
It's exciting. It is exciting because when the research first came out, I know Christian and I were kind of like, what's going on here, you know, with regards to that systemic effect? Um, And we're forever learning about it. And I think I'm going to keep going on this microbiota stream, if that's okay with you, um, (laughs) and just dive into that quickly because there is so much research, like it's a significant body of research around the microbiota and microbiome in general, actually, um, and that correlation with type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, et cetera. And, you know, I just, you've sort of already discussed it, but can Mm. you maybe go into some of those, the changes in the microbiota that we do see that that could be a hint, you know, are we doing jab mapping or any sort of stool testing or anything that you see that correlates um, whether it's just dysbiosis or what you see in the research and what you've seen within your patients that mm. kind of connect that microbiota shift or change to that pre-diabetes diabetes stage? Is it, you know, as significant as the research actually claims it to be? I think it is as significant as the research claims it to be. And I must admit, I haven't used any gut testing specifically to look at um, the microbial levels within my clients but now that I've seen more of the research um, and actually getting quite strain specific with um, those microbial metabolites I'm starting to consider that that's um, certainly an area that we can start to look into as clinicians uh, because the, um, the the science does seem to be supporting it it's it's almost like a um, it's almost like a a specialist area on its own. Like there's so much information coming out about the microbiome um, and dysglycemia is just that little aspect of it that it's kind of, it's hard to keep up with it all, but it's it's very exciting. Um, And there is an increasing body of evidence that the gut microbiome does influence the pathogenesis of insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. Um, and when you think about it, you know, the, the gut microbiome does produce numerous metabolites that are involved in um, nutrition uptake and energy production, gut barrier function, inflammation, and, um, and glucose metabolism. So it, that's why I think it really is, is having an effect there. And uh, research also shows that the gut microbiome biota composition of diabetes patients is different to that of healthy people Um, and it's thought that it's due to the inflammation and the intestinal permeability that that inflammation causes allowing endotoxins and other things to be able to get into the body and trigger metabolic changes so I think that's really really interesting um, which is um, another key reason to uh, target inflammation with our with our herbal medicines uh, particularly what I haven't said much about uh, yet is uh, turmeric so that would be probably one of my favorites um, yeah so look such a, such an array of um, amazing information coming out about the microbiome um, but in the absence of doing any microbial testing, one of the things we can encourage them to do is, um, you know, eating a diverse uh, fibre intake, you know, and to, to feed those um, gut bugs and increase the diversity of those gut bugs. And, um, you know, uh, we know that that's very protective for health generally. And often our, our patients are perhaps eating um, processed or ultra-processed foods 
which um, don't support a healthy microbiome. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, I always think chicken or the egg scenario with regards to inflammation and leaky gut, leaky gut, there I go again, Kristen, Um, (laughs) Um, you know, because often I, in my mind, it makes a lot of sense unless there was an acute infection or food poisoning or something along the lines of that, that actual, probably that dysbiosis and diversity and richness change is happening over time to create that inflammation, et cetera. So I think if we're thinking back on the pathogenesis of disease and what changes happen in the gut, then we have to think back at that perhaps that's at the root of our treatment and management um, Mm -hmm. plans that we give Mm -hmm. our patients in that regards. And so I honestly think that herbal medicine has a really important role here to play and, and herbal medicine can also be food as medicine. But if we're looking at, you know, like the, the research on polyphenols in, in ha- as food for the bacteria is tremendous. And, you know, we can really get quite specific with our food as medicine, but I think we can utilise herbal extracts in a very similar way. So do you kind of have one or two or three interesting <laughs> herbs that you, even through your research that, that you've, you think can really support that diversity and richness of our microbiota? Uh, yes, I read something recently that said it, it's it's a lot more complex than I'm about to explain, but it seems that it primarily occurs through two pathways. So one is that the gut microbiota almost like digest the herbal medicines. Like I said uh, just, re- just then about berberine, um, it kind of digests them into smaller active molecules which enter the body and um, then can um, do what they do. Many herbs that we use will influence the gut microbiome in in many uh, beneficial ways. Herbal medicines generally can increase um, the abundance of anti-inflammatory bacteria from a gut perspective as well So and, and decrease pathogenic bacteria. So that also in and of itself can help with that low-grade um, inflammation, which can have an effect on improving glycemic control. Yeah, there are so many. And um, we've done some, Kristen, you'll have to remind me, but I know we've done definitely a webinar and because I did it and uh, a podcast. <laughs> and I think was that last year, Kristen, or was it the year before? This is ridiculous. I think it was 2020 actually the microbiome modulation and um, that was the same year that I had done a webinar on um, infectious triggers of autoimmune disease and I think that when you were talking Karen about you know the the different ratio of bacteria and the different um, I guess environment that we see in a uh, disease state like in a diabetes state there's a lot of information that um, I researched for that webinar, looking at type one diabetes as an autoimmune condition, but also seeing that same um, disrupted uh, microbial balance and looking at, you know, this, this situation where there is increased intestinal permeability and zonulin expression mm. there's you know, mm. poor in, um, gastrointestinal tract integrity and the diversity is generally decreased. So if we can use our herbal medicines to increase that diversity mm. and promote um, healing of um, the gut and tight junctions in the gut wall and, um, you know, a general uh, balance of <laughs> inflammation, you know, pro and anti-inflammation, then it's going to be a good thing. And like you said, Julianne, there's so many 
polysaccharide-rich plants, yeah. polyphenol-rich plants, selective antimicrobials, herbal prebiotics, half the herbs we, you know, just mentioned. If we're even looking at, um, you know, nigella, that's a, a selective antimicrobial. Um, Turmeric selectively acting as an antimicrobial. Yeah. So pomegranate. Um, pomegranate green berberine you know yeah. is outstanding because yes. we used to think that berberine was the enemy of all types of species right yeah. and then with the research we thought hang on a minute it's actually it's quite so supportive much. of our good stuff as well so absolutely is profound within the gut and i often think and chris and i have had lots of chats over the years around this too when herbal medicines aren't particularly working in a way that you believe they should be working for a patient because you prescribe them for a certain symptom or indication. Mm. It's possibly due to the microbiome, you know, or their yeah. microbiota in general. Because as you mentioned, Karen, that they do transform these metabolites into active metabolites and absorbable metabolites. Ginseng species is another one That's um, right. that requires that. So, you know, sometimes, you know, the herb's not the bad guy. Could actually be that it's the gut microbiota that's actually not metabolizing that herbal medicine correctly. Absolutely. Yeah. Ginseng mm. is another one actually um, that, that uh, works very, very similar. Yeah. Now I just want to go back. I have jumped around and I apologize, Karen, but I want to go back to one modifiable lifestyle, I guess, um, risk factor, I'll say risk factor in obesity and particularly around central obesity. And now this is you know, we do know that lifestyle changes can actually make a massive difference yeah. in changing that adiposity, particularly around central central weight gain. However, I think that we can use herbal medicines even in a supportive role in that regards, and some of them work on on different pathways. But have you do you tend to utilize herbal medicines in a supportive way for weight loss, or is it kind of such as magnolia or green tea or something that like that that we can utilize and even korean ginseng that we can utilize for weight loss and support or do you tend to just reach for those ones we spoke of earlier such as the anti-diabetic ones or you know glycemic control ones uh, i often reach for the ones that we've already spoken about but i do like you mentioned green tea i do like um using green tea uh it's you know, uh, it has an anti-obesity effect of green tea. So uh, through several mechanisms, um, including adipocyte proliferation, I think, it also helps with inhibition, inhibition of um, fat absorption from the gut and or helps um, maintain the brown adipose tissue as well so that's more thermogenic so i do like green green tea for for weight loss um i also as i mentioned i will always throw an anti-inflammatory in there so usually my herb of choice there is curcumin uh you mentioned earlier that bitter melon is really really bitter uh it is which is not a bad thing i do uh, like to include bitter herbs as well they help um stimulate that um that incretin effect in the gut so uh, using bitters prior to to meals can help with um, weight management as well i have used coleus uh which i did like but it, it did seem to take quite a while so if you've got a client who's kind of willing to, to to buy in for the long term and i guess they really should be anyway um, i think it took about four to six months before we started to see real results with that in addition to changing some lifestyle factors as well. But 
it um, it does help with blood pressure as well and um, maintaining lean muscle mass. So I do like colas on occasion as well. Uh, and, you know, it does, weight loss does remain uh, pretty challenging, but I'll often look at, um, oh, there's always herbs involved, but I'll often look at also other things, different different dietary combinations, exercise, of course, um, time-restricted eating and that kind of thing works for some people as well. Yeah, I think with mm-hmm. with obesity and with weight loss, it is such it's mm-hmm. so tricky because it's it's one of those things that you know really um, shows for people. So you know they can get discouraged if they feel that they can't see the changes mm-hmm. as quickly as they would like to see. So having yeah, I try to explain that. it to clients that um, you know that um, having excess adipose tissue you know, explain to them that it does attract and it does um, express, you know, those inflammatory um, cytokines so they're they're released from the fat. And I explain to them what's in their herbal medicine, why there's an anti-inflammatory there, um, and so that they really kind of understand that it's going to take a little bit of time to work. And I also... Um, explain to people with lifestyle change, for example, uh, just walking is one of my favourites, <laughs> all over kind of um, exercise, that it's not about using up calories, it's about, um, you know, resensitizing those insulin receptors. So, you know, just explaining to them things in a, in a slightly different way so they don't have to get up in the morning and think, oh, that naturopath wants me to go for a walk, you know, I've got to use calories um they should be getting up in the morning and say i'm going to go for a walk and sensitize my insulin receptors so (laughs) just trying to make it a little bit more um fun or interesting or or so they understand like the rationale behind you know some of the suggestions and some of the herbs can help too and you know by better understanding themselves and having a great practitioner to motivate them and teach them and guide them with their you know becoming well mm. is just essential on if you've got a chronic disease you need someone in your corner that really is you know looking at yeah. you objectively and thoroughly and um you know holding your hand along the way so i think that's fantastic and you know the herbal medicines really are I guess, you know, such an integral part, but they're not the only part, you know, there's so much that we mm. can do diet mm. and lifestyle and, um, you know, other nutritional supplements. So I just want to switch gears for a second sure. and talk about safely co-prescribing our herbal medicines alongside pharmaceutical medications, because this is a really common area of interest and and probably concern um, that many practitioners reach out to our tech support team about. So, you know, many of these, uh, many diabetic patients, once they've been diagnosed, will be on some sort of a a Mm. pharmaceutical medication. So how do you go about safely co-prescribing herbs alongside pharmaceutical anti-diabetic medications Mm -hmm. like metformin you mentioned earlier or perhaps they're on a a hypotensive Mm. and um you know how how do you monitor your patients are you in contact with their gp or their primary uh, prescribing primary care physician we just sort of wanted to quiz you on your process in 
in how you, I guess, do things so that you make sure you're, you're doing them safely. Yeah. So, well, the process, um, and uh, you're right, um, Kristen, that most people who come to see me are already on some kind of medication. Uh, so my process is always to um, introduce myself to their um, GP, you know, that they're seeing. Uh, I'll always ask, of course, if that's um, agreeable to the client. Occasionally I'll get a no, please don't talk to my, I don't want my um, doctor to know that I'm seeing a naturopath. But uh, in most cases, people are very happy for me to just send a letter of introduction and then follow that up with um, what I've prescribed and how it's working so that uh, everybody's on the same page. Um, Safely prescribing herbal medicines along pharmaceutical medications, I think the most important thing is to understand how the medication that they're on might be working, so the mechanism of action behind their medication um, and understanding the mechanism of action behind the herb that you prescribe as well to to make sure that you're not potentiating, um, uh, you know, the action of that, that medication. Uh, the, the main thing that I see, and I haven't had any major issues with, with prescribing um, herbal medicine alongside pharmaceutical medications, uh, the main concern or caution would be with the hypoglycemic herbs and hypoglycemic you know, medication that's also hypoglycemic. You don't want to send those clients into a, um, a hypoglycemic of, of effect so monitoring those ones carefully but um i haven't actually in all these years i actually haven't had anybody have a negative uh experience with uh when i've uh, co-prescribed um metformin is a really common one that, that you've just mentioned as well and i've actually found that quite safe very safe to actually prescribe along alongside actually i i did read uh, a study about um metformin and another group oh, there were two groups and there was somebody uh, there was a group on metformin medication another group taking metformin with turmeric and that actually showed a um beneficial effect in them being used together, which I was really delighted to see with turmeric being one of my favourites to, to choose. Uh, there's an, another common diabetes medication um, called uh, glimepiride, and they did a study with that on bitter melon, and it showed that there were synergistic properties that resulted in... Um, you know, being able to lower pharmaceutical levels, there was actually a better glycemic control with the medication at a lower dose with um, with bitmelon as well. So a lot of the herbs are really, really safe to to use alongside common diabetes um, pharmaceuticals. And what I'm sort of taking away from this too, Karen, is mm-hmm. that not only can can they be safe provided that you you know you you understand why you're prescribing something and you've 
you know, looked up what the class of drug that the patient is on and, you know, cross-check that. But it, it can also not just be safe but be really beneficial and effective and you know yeah. potentially even um you know have a greater effect than if you were to just you know totally uh step back and and be too scared to to dip your toe in and yeah. try and help the patient with herbs so yeah. i guess another question along the same lines uh as what we're talking about with patients that are on pharmaceutical medication for their diabetes what you've spoken about from the research um, in your experience, do you, have you found that it's ever possible, you know, when you are working alongside the patient's um, primary care physician with, you know, herbal medicines, lifestyle strategies and nutritionals, have you found that you're able to get them well enough in order to potentially then reduce the drug dose or possibly, you know, have any patients come off drugs altogether, you know, with the help from their GP, is that a very common thing you've seen in practice? The most common thing I see in practice is um, the ability to reduce the pharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah. Um, With the use of um, particular herbal medicines, yeah. So I've definitely seen the medication be able to be reduced, Um, not so much come off it altogether, but some of the pharmaceutical medication is notoriously difficult to take due to its side effects. So you'll often have a group of clients that the GP thinks that they're taking their pharmaceuticals and they aren't because the the side effects are so distressing to them and we have actually been able to manage to hold them um, with good glycemic control with herbal medicines and diet and lifestyle change. So it's not that they've come off so to speak, Um, and I do encourage, of course, I encourage clients, please be upfront and honest. You know, your your GP is managing you and monitoring you as as if you're taking these prescribed medicines. So it really is important to be open and upfront. But there there is um, quite a group of people that will refuse to take their medications due to the side effects. So I'll often explain to them too that let their GP know because there could be a different pharmaceutical that could work um, just as well for them but by a different mechanism um, and not have those side effects as well so it is actually um, very rewarding to to see pharmaceutical medications be decreased in the clients to a level where they're no longer experiencing those side effects and because there's so much research now establishing the safety of the herbs in conjunction with these pharmaceuticals that you know, I really want. Like when we go, when we do a deeper dive in the, in the webinar, what I really hope um, for clinicians to get out of that is confidence in prescribing. Yeah, I think we have so many checks we can do with regards to safety and phytomedicines, and yeah, sometimes that's a block for practitioners. I think that that we're quite worried about crossing a line there, but we actually have a lot of safe checks that we can do. So thank you for those for those answers, and we look forward to your webinar and hearing a little bit more about it. And I also really appreciate you talking about reaching out to GPs or their mm-hmm. primary care physician in the early stages, because I think patients, like you said, they will say, "Oh no, don't don't." You know, I don't want them to know this, but if we can get all of that care team on the same page, coordinating um, information with each other, then that patient is going to be in far greater position to improve their health and have confidence in each practitioner as they move ahead. 
Absolutely. I mean, when a client is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they you know, there there is a care team aspect to it. So there's an annual cycle of care with other health and medical professionals. So, for example, um, you know, you can be part of that care team even if you're just there as the reminder for them to go see their care team. So, um, you know, the, the cycle of care includes things like seeing a podiatrist, um, every year or getting their blood pressure done at least every six months, getting their um, blood fats looked at every every year. So, you know, even, even if you do contact a GP and the GP is not really interested in working with a naturopath, then if you look at the bigger picture of who their care team is, um, there's often somebody in there who will be very happy to work with you. It could be the optometrist, it could be the podiatrist, it could be the exercise physiologist. So it's, um, and it's really a great way of being able to showcase what you can do as a natural medicine practitioner as well. That's a really good tip and, and develop mm-hmm. networks. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. wonder, Karen, if just to finish up, if, if any particular uh, type 2 diabetes case stands out in your mind that you could share with our listeners, um, a little description or summary of that particular case. Uh, I do have the first one that pops into mind is not like a true type 2 diabetes case um but she had such a remarkable uh response to um uh to the berberine that i'd prescribed her so she was probably more in that pre-diabetes level which is really important to grab anyway because as we know the the microvascular issues are or you know there's already things starting to happen there but she had a familial hypercholesterolemia with it. So her cholesterol um, levels were really, really, really high. And the combination of this pre-diabetes situation and um, the, the dyslipidemias as well was, you know, really raised red flags for me. So uh, put her on some, some herbs for... Um, uh, you know, glycemic control and insulin sensitivity for the, the kind of pre-diabetes thing, looked at her diet, looked at exercise, etc. But it was the berberine-containing herbs that she was on, I think, for only about two months that saw her cholesterol levels for the first time since she could ever remember back to the normal range. Yeah. That's a great. So that was, yeah, I know. I know. I shouldn't have been. I shouldn't have been surprised. So you know, I kind of sat there going, "Hmm." Yeah. Well, when you see familial hypercholesterolemia, we do kind of go, "Oh, this could yeah. be a bit more challenging to shift, right?" So yeah, um, yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. So um, that's that's really the first one that that came to mind, I guess, because we're talking quite a bit about berberine, but um, it's you know our the. These evidence-based herbal medicines that we have um, are really powerful medicines and very effective. Um, and you know, I, I love. You know, we know as naturopaths that these things have always worked, but now we're knowing why, and the research is really establishing why and really backing it up. And I really love that. 
Yeah, thanks, Karen. And as as herbalists, we definitely do too. And we love a bit yeah. of the woo-woo about herbal medicine as well. We can't ignore <laughs> that, the energetic properties of the herbs. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise in this area. We are so appreciative of you jumping on and having this chat with us today. And I really am very excited to your, listen to your or be part of your live webinar. And I encourage practitioners listening to contact Optimal Rx and jump on board and, and register to have a listen to your live webinar because they get the opportunity to have a Q&A with you at the end of that, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to hearing from you again next month. You're very welcome. I'm so pleased to be here to talk about it all and really looking forward to the webinar where we can do a bit of a more of a deep dive and people have the opportunity to ask some questions. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it very much. Great. Thanks, Karen. Thank you.